Good morning. Echo that sentiment for sure. So helpful to us, as Greg said last night, really the aim is to serve our hearts, and doesn't it serve us well to help us meditate on the meaning of this season? That, that's our goal in this sermon series as well as we pause for several weeks through Advent. I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 2, the second psalm, where we'll be this morning. On June 8, 2020, the Seattle Police Department announced via Twitter for some reason that a crowd of protesters was, quote, throwing bottles, rocks, fireworks, and other projectiles at officers. They went on, the crowd is shining green lasers into officers' eyes. Shortly after that, to de-escalate the situation, this intense clash that had been going on for over a week between protesters and police officers, the Seattle police boarded up and abandoned its east precinct. Protesters immediately filled that void, and they occupied several blocks of Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood. And that area came to be known, you may remember this from the news, as the CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Protesters commandeered the police barricades that had been left behind, and they set them up to their own purposes to keep vehicles out of this area, this autonomous zone. They put up signs at the entrances that read, you are now leaving the USA. Welcome to the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Chaz was supposed to be a police-free zone. Signs on the police precinct were changed to read, instead of Seattle Police Department, Seattle People's Department. There was a community garden and racially segregated public spaces available as well. However, the Chaz attempt at autonomy failed to produce that police-free paradise that they set out to create. One author reported, over its 24-day history, the autonomous zone saw two gun homicides and four additional shooting victims. In the absence of a legitimate police force, armed criminal gangs and untrained anarchist paramilitaries filled the void. Almost every night, gunshots rang through the streets. By instituting a police-free zone, the Chaz didn't become peaceable. It became lawless, brutish, and violent. Though the Chaz existed less than four weeks in just a mere few city blocks in Seattle, it, it is a poignant picture to us of the problem with this world as a whole. Beginning with humanity's fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3, Scripture repeatedly describes man's attempt to set up and establish this world as an autonomous zone, free from God's rule and God's reign. And even though you personally would perhaps never even dream of participating in a protest like that yourself, Chaz actually represents every one of us, who we are in our hearts in sinful rebellion against God. According to Scripture, every man, every woman, every child sets up an autonomous zone in our own hearts. Every last one of us is, by nature, an anti-God protester, a lawless rebel intent on running our own lives our own way. We think we know better than God, don't we? At every turn, we think we know better than God what's best for us, what will satisfy us, what will fulfill us, and what a mess we make of our own lives. 
instead of establishing some utopian order our own way, everything we touch, we, we ruin. Inside our own hearts and minds can be turmoil, our thoughts, our desires, our emotions. Our, we can make a mess of our relationships, of our finances, of every aspect of our life. And the root of all the mess in the world could be summed up as, as that, humanity's attempt to live our lives our own way. And as hopeless as that mess feels when you're living in the midst of it, when you're thinking about your own life, what, what a mess I am, this is the very context into which God the Father makes one of his clearest declarations to and about his son in the second psalm. And so I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able, out of our regard for God and his word as I read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your self-expression, your self revelation, your communication of yourself to us through your word and, and through your son. Help us to see Jesus as glorious, as we have already sung about together this morning. Oh God, help us to see Jesus as you reveal him to us here in your word. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So this Advent, we're giving our attention to these texts in Scripture where the Father speaks not only about the Son, but to the Son directly. There is something significant about that. This morning, our focus is Psalm 2, in particular, verse 7. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Before we go any further, I want to consider the question, who is this son in Psalm 2, written hundreds, maybe even a thousand years before Jesus. Before we go there, who is this son? Psalm 2 is written anonymously. There's no author attached to it. Many psalms, it's right at the beginning, a psalm of David or some other author is named. Many believe this was written by David, 
but we don't know that for sure. It's clear from verse 2, this is a messianic psalm. The word Messiah is the word we use in English describing the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. And it's right there. That Hebrew word is right there in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah. So this psalm is about the Messiah, the anointed one. And while it's true that each of the kings in Israel's history would have been anointed with oil as they became king, the events described here in Psalm 2 don't match the circumstances, as far as we know, of any of the kings in Israel's history until Jesus. Psalm 2 is about Jesus. It's prophetically foretelling and announcing something that's going to be fulfilled in that king. He is the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one. Psalm 2 is also considered to be a royal psalm, which is a psalm about the king of God's people. Some scholars even think Psalm 2, 7, and 8, these could have been words that were spoken at the coronation of every king descended from David. That's because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God spoke to David about his offspring, about his line, and he said, I will be to him, speaking of David's son, a father, and he shall be to me a son. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God also promised David an eternal kingdom. And that came not through an unbroken, ongoing line of perfect kings, but one king descended from David, who would reign forever by conquering death, rising again. Psalm 2 is about Jesus. The New Testament claims that as well. In fact, this is one of the most frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament. The very first time this language appears is when the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary to announce to her that she's going to bear a son. Very first thing that Gabriel says to Mary, this is Luke 1.32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. That's a reference to 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. The idea, there is going to be one who is called the son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel appears using Psalm 2 language. The first Christmas was the beginning of the fulfillment of everything foretold and promised and prophesied in Psalm 2. And then fast forward to Acts chapter 4, the disciples of Jesus, they recognized that what they witnessed with their own eyes, what they lived through when Jesus was arrested and betrayed and murdered, what they saw was the fulfillment of the events described in Psalm 2. This situation, beginning few verses about the nations raging and kings plotting together against God and his anointed, they were not describing a situation from the days of David or Solomon or Hezekiah or any other king in Israel's history. They were describing what came to pass in Jesus. So the disciples quote Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2 in prayer, and then they say to God, that just came true. Truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Psalm 2, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, they recognize from Psalm 2 this language of the nations conspiring, and they say, this just happened. The Gentiles and the Jews came together against God's anointed one to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And then, in Acts chapter 13, in one of his sermons, Paul claims that the divine decree here in Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you, 
that that referred to Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. The author of Hebrews also quotes Psalm 2, 7, twice, claiming this is about Jesus. So for all those reasons, we can confidently say Psalm 2 is ultimately and exclusively about Jesus. The the psalmist, by divine revelation, is foretelling what is going to happen. He, He has a glimpse, and he records it for us, of this address between God the Father and God the Son. Just consider for a moment what a privilege it is for us to have access to that. As a fan of the Minnesota Vikings, my favorite content that their media team puts out every week, all of the the behind the scenes exclusive access videos, the, the stuff they call field access and mic'd up, where it gives fans like me from my own couch a glimpse into the huddle and the sideline and the locker room and the airplane. I mean, I'm not on the team, I, I get that, but it makes me feel like I am. And I get fired up. I'm a little bit competitive. And so just like I, when I feel like I'm in the huddle right there with those guys, my wife can attest to this. Sometimes I get choked up. I'm moved by the camaraderie and the brotherhood. Like, let's go. It's an incredible access to something that I, due to my lack of athletic ability, would never otherwise have access to. Only that elite few enjoy that. Psalm 2-7 is like that. It's an exclusive behind-the-scenes look into the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, and you get to see that and hear what the Father says to the Son. Just consider that. As we listen to the divine conference here, we, we see that God reconciles the world, this rebellious world, to himself by turning rebels into worshipers of his Son. That's what Psalm 2 is about. God reconciles the world to himself by turning rebels into worshipers of his son. And I want to look at that under three headings. First, what this psalm reveals about the father, what it reveals about the son, and finally, what it means for the world. What what does this reveal about the father? In verse 7, the Lord's anointed speaks for the first time in the whole psalm. It starts by describing the nation's raging, and then it tells us what God in heaven thinks about it, and then it turns to the the anointed one speaking, but when he speaks, he just repeats what the Father has said to him. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I have begotten you is a declaration that God the Father makes, describing God the Father's action. God is the subject here. He is the doer, the one doing the action. And what we notice first is this simple and yet profound reality that God the Father speaks. He reveals himself. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said. God speaks. He communicates himself. In fact, we would not know anything about him unless this were true, that he makes himself known. He reveals himself. That's why the very first sentence in the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith says, Our eternal, transcendent, all-glorious God who forever exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is by his very nature, a communicative being. By nature, he communicates. We can't say anything about God, who he is, what he's like, what he does, unless it's first true that he makes himself known. We just wouldn't know otherwise. 
All doctrine, all theology flows from this reality that God loves to communicate and express himself. It's his nature to speak, to reveal, to overflow, to extend himself outward as it were. But not only does the Father speak, he begets. That's what he says. When he speaks, he says to the Son, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. To beget means to father. The Hebrew word here appears nearly 500 times in the Old Testament, especially common in all of those genealogies. Come to a genealogy, this word is going to, that's where the word count really piles up. Adam fathered Seth. Seth fathered Enosh. Enosh fathered Kenan. On and on and on. Fathered, begat, brought forth. But what does it mean for God to beget a son? How can God father a son. This is significant because this is the primary way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us in terms of this father-son relationship. Think about that. Of all the ways God could talk about who he is and this relationship within God, he has revealed himself to us in terms of a father-son relationship. That's helpful because it's really familiar. Every one of us comes from a father. So, This is relatable. And yet, whenever God speaks analogically or in what we call an anthropomorphic way, using human things to describe what's going on in God, we have to be careful to think in the right direction. What I mean is, it's not that our experience of fatherhood is the real thing and God's is just kind of like that, but maybe a downgrade or not quite as real as ours. No, it's, it's totally the other way around. God is the definition of fatherhood, and he has graciously allowed us to experience a sliver of that so that we could relate to and understand something of what he's like. God the Father's generation of the Son, that's the real thing. He's the image, we're the reflection. He's the original, we're the copy. That's how this kind of description Works. So as a copy, our experience is helpful, but it's, it's imperfect. For one, for God to generate or beget the Son, it, it's a spiritual thing. It's not a physical or sensual thing as it is for us creatures. I think the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink is helpful here. He writes, the generation or procreation of human beings is imperfect and flawed. A husband needs a wife to bring forth a son. No man can ever fully impart his image, his whole nature to a child. A man becomes a father only in the course of time and then stops being a father and a child soon becomes wholly independent from and self-reliant with regard to his or her father. But it is not so with God. It's different with God. God is no abstract fixed, solitary substance, but a plenitude of life, Bavink says. A plenitude of life. It is his nature to be generative, fruitful. God is an infinite fullness of blessed life. That tells us something about God, that he overflows by nature, gives life by nature, generates by nature. In fact, God speaking by nature and begetting by nature, those are connected. 
And this is the very way that Scripture talks about and describes the Son for us. Matt prayed from John 1 this morning. He is the Word. He's the Word. He's the way that God expresses and communicates Himself. The Son is. C.S. Lewis says, The Son streams forth from the Father the way that thoughts stream forth from a mind. That's helpful, right? That's why he's called the Logos, the Word, the reason of God. Here's Lewis. He, that is the Son, is the self-expression of the Father. What the Father has to say. He is what the Father has to say. And never was there a time when he was not saying it. That's one of our struggles. Well, if you're a father, you, didn't, you haven't always been a father, and you had to wait for your child to arrive. But God, by his nature, is always expressing himself. There's never been a time when he was not expressing himself, and his self-expression is his son. No wonder the author of Hebrews says, right before citing Psalm 2-7, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He is a speaking God. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. By his son. The father expresses himself in the world, not only in spoken words, but ultimately in a person. And through the son, the father acts and asserts himself in this world. Back in Psalm 2, after it describes this raging rebellion of the nations against the Lord, it turns to God's response in verse 4. What is God doing? He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. God's position is key here. He, He sits in the heavens. He sits in a place of exalted authority over and above everyone else, and his place of authority is not threatened in the least by those who set up and say, This is now our autonomous zone, and we want nothing to do with you. God just laughs at that. But not as one who is simply far off and disconnected and unbothered by it. He is not out of touch. He's not absent or passive. Look at verses 5 and 6 in Psalm 2. Then he, that's the Father, will speak to them, those are the ones rebelling against him, in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set up my king on Zion my holy hill. That is, God the Father asserts himself in the world through his Son. All of that is packed into this declaration. God the Father speaks and he begets and he acts in the world through the Son. So what does this text tell us about the Son? Well, as the one begotten by the Father, he is the one who then reveals God to the world. That's one of the most fundamental aspects of sonship to resemble, to represent. Listen to the way that Adam's genealogy is described in Genesis chapter 5. It begins by repeating familiar language from Genesis 1. When God created man, this is Genesis 5.1, he made him in the likeness of God. That's incredible. And then verse 3 says this, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son. What does it mean to father a son? He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. To father a son is to replicate, or we use the word reproduce. Why do we call it reproduction? You don't actually reproduce yourself, you produce another. But it's like reproducing yourself, because there's resemblance there. 
to produce again a begotten son resembles his father. And he represents his father. I love how C.S. Lewis explains this in Mere Christianity. Let me quote at length. He says, when you beget, and we we need these kinds of descriptions because we don't use the word beget very often. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. And a bird begets eggs which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man may make something more like himself, say, a statue. And if he's clever enough as a carver, he may make a statue which is very like man indeed. But, of course, it's not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think. It's not alive. What God begets is God just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not man. So the begotten Son of God is God. And that's why He perfectly reveals and represents and resembles the Father to the world. This is what we confess in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. So the New Testament speaks about Jesus, the man, who is fully God, and says things like Hebrews 1.3, He, right there, is the radiance, the shining forth, the visible reality of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. It's not a defect in God's character that He's invisible. That's one of His attributes, and it's perfect about God that he's invisible, and yet he reveals himself. He begets a son who is the image of the invisible God, or as Matt prayed from John 1 this morning, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He resembles and represents all that God is to us, which raises a question. Why then does Psalm 2-7 say, Today, today I have begotten you. At first, it might sound like Jesus began to exist, or there was a time when he didn't exist, or he became God's son at some point. Theologians have pointed to several different moments that that word today might be referring to. Some say it refers to Christmas, when the incarnation, the eternal son of God, became a man. Others say it refers to uh, Jesus' baptism, which Matt preached on Last week, that moment when the Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. In Acts 13, I mentioned this earlier, Paul quotes this verse and says, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that's when the Father says to him, today I have begotten you. Paul says this in Acts 13, 32 through 33, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. How? By raising Jesus As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. However we take that 
moment today, it's clear, it's, it's not talking about when the Son of God began to exist. Scripture is clear, Jesus, as God, has existed with the Father in glory forever. He is the eternally begotten Son of God. As long as the Father has existed, He has always been expressing Himself in the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And yet, what this word tells us is that at a time in human history, that Son of God became a man. And I think his entire life can be summed up in this. His birth, his perfect life and obedience to the Father, his death for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the Father where he now sits and rules and reigns. He is the man who represents the Father perfectly to the world. And he stepped into and began to enjoy and exercise all of his rights and privileges as the Son of God. He fulfilled this decree in Psalm 2-7 in history by taking on full humanity and obeying the Father perfectly, even to the point of death. And so, a quote again from C.S. Lewis, he says, for the first time, we saw a real man. Think about that. Never, ever in the history of the world before Jesus had the world ever seen a human reach full maturity. Adam was created sinless, but he disobeyed God before he grew up into full maturity. In Jesus, for the first time, the world sees that's real humanity. That's a real Man, Adam failed, David failed, Solomon failed. Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly. He grew up into full manhood. That, that's what sons are meant to do, right? If you have a son, they don't stay a baby forever. A son might be born the heir of the kingdom, and everybody's excited, but he has to grow up and become the heir. That's what Jesus did in his perfect life. Sons are meant to grow up and launch into the world and carry on the family name and take over the family business and inherit the estate. They're meant to step into that full maturity. That's when they most fully represent, and that's what Jesus did. Psalm 2.8 continues the Father's decree to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus, as the Son of God, is the heir of the whole world. Everything that belongs to the Father belongs to him, the Son, by right, and since everything belongs to God, then everything belongs to the Son. The whole world, and so Hebrews 1-2 says, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, it goes on, whom he appointed the heir of all things. All things, the whole planet lawfully belongs to Jesus. There are no autonomous zones. He holds the title to the whole world. And God says about his son, referring to the raging nations, verse 9, you, my son, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That word break in Hebrew could also be translated rule. You will rule them. In fact, that's how this verse is translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament. You shall rule them with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 comes up again. In the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19.15, speaks of Jesus in Psalm 2 language. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The begotten Son of God represents God fully and perfectly to the world. And that's why this decree from the Father to the Son 
is for the world. This decree is for the world. What makes this decree in Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you, this divine conference between father and son, what makes it so powerful is not only the content of the decree, but the context of it. It's not just that the father said this to the son one day in private, my son, I love you so much. No, he says this to the son, and it's announced to the world living in rebellion against God in the midst of global unrest as the nations are raging, as the kings of the earth are conspiring together against God and his anointed. Where does the king turn his mind to find his confidence? What truth does he announce to the world? Let me remind you all, setting up your autonomous zone about one thing, right here. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This father-son relationship is at the center of God's plan to reconcile that rebellious world to himself. This is the hope for the world, this rebellious world. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Kiss the son. To kiss the son is to pay homage, to swear affectionate loyalty and humble submission to him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is how God reconciles a rebellious world to himself. I think God could just step down and say to all those rebels, you're done, it's over. To hell with all of you now. But he doesn't. He sends forth his son. And he says, worship him, and you will be saved. He turns rebels into worshipers. There's no neutral ground. The son is also the judge, and everyone who persists in rebellion against him will be judged by the son. But everyone who worships him and takes refuge in him will be saved. So kiss the son. And in every area of your life where you recognize that your own pride and autonomy has made a mess, worship the sun there, right in the midst of your strained relationship with a parent or a child or your spouse, worship the sun there, right in the middle of the midst of your messed up finances, worship the, the sun there, in the middle of your fear or your anxiety or your despair or your depression, worship the sun there. This is God's remedy for the world. He's provided his son. Worship him. Bend your knee and honor him. And he will give you his very life. Let's pray. Father, these are mysteries. We confess greater than our ability to grasp or fathom or master. We don't pretend to have mastered this, but since you speak to us in these ways, since you have declared to us this decree, then we trust that you mean for us to know it and be edified by it, to be affected. So we pray that through the power of your Spirit, this reality 
this relationship, oh God, that has existed forever within you, the Godhead, that, that this reality would change our lives as you turn us into worshipers who behold your glory in Jesus, our Savior. Amen.